Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number seven. Is it? It is. I think it's seven. We're on seven. I know we've done six. Yeah, six was the reading (laughs) podcast. That's right. Yes, we should know this. We should. We don't. But hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're so glad that you're here. Oh, it's start over. Yeah, no, let's we're just... start over. We can, we can salvage this. You can just Bring it up from the ashes, Tim. Okay, so today Andy is going to talk about good observations when you study the Bible. Careful observations. Careful observations. Yep, careful observations. Okay, but before we do that, as always, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. Books and business. Every time. Every time he has to say it. But I, I'm with you. It won't be every time. Stearns. I am reading. I just started a book by Daryl Bach called The Missing Gospels. In Intro to Bible Study, we talk about canonicity and what books made it into the canon. When the Da Vinci Code came out in the early 2000s, it was about, I believe it was the Gospel of Thomas. And the idea is that way back in church history, Constantine. Was Tom Hanks in that? Yeah, yes, he was. That's not the one with the volleyball, though. That's a different one. I, I don't know which one you're talking about there. Okay, but it is Tom Hanks. It is Tom Hanks. I, I believe it's Tom Hanks. I watched Hanks. it once. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Da Vin- Go Vin- back. Constantine. Yeah, all that to say is there's these conspiracy theories that Constantine manipulated what books would be in the Bible and what Christianity was. And there's this really, there's this hidden Christianity that was just part of the different views about Jesus early on. But when one position, the Orthodox position we hold, won the day, all these other equally valid views were kind of wiped out or erased. And so Bart Ehrman, <laughs> Elena Pagel, I, 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 I'm, her name is, I'm blanking on it right now. There was a, a giant discovery of some older books, uh, some older so-called gospels are not really they were discovered in like 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And people started writing books saying, hey, the Bible actually doesn't have the actual Gospels, the ones that really show that Jesus was just a human maybe or something like that. Uh, they're not in the Bible. And so what Daryl Bach is doing is he's saying, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the age. Let's look at the type of manuscript. Let's look at what we have for the New Testament. Let's look at what we don't have with these proto-Gnostic or incipient Gnosticism is the best way to say it. And then the later Gnostic Gospels don't come until the 2nd and 3rd century. So I'm just starting it, but it's part of kind of what I need to know for my class and seems very interesting so far. Yeah, just the way that you, like, assumed the voice of the opponent there was, was really funny. Thank you. These other Gospels, well, they're just as equally valid. <laughs> well, no, but that's the... <laughs> okay. I All know. right. I, I, I've listened to Bart Ehrman. He's never sounded he like that. He doesn't no. sound like that. Well, and I was... No, okay. Bart Ehrman, if you hear this... <laughs> Come on the podcast, man. We'll we let them hear your voice in reality. Anyone else got a Carter, book they want to talk about? What are you? I reading? have a book that I would love to talk about. This is a book that I don't think it was ever assigned in my college curriculum or seminary. I think Tim, Doctor Little, I think you referenced this or kind of pointed me towards it. It mm. is amusing ourselves to death. Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business by it's Neil Postman. Such a good book. It, it really so is. So good. And some of these men, you know, and we we talk about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, some of these guys all the time. This is a much different era, kind of. But they write these things 
and they turn out to be very prophetic. And he, I think the original book was published in 1986. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the cover, and it's a, a man and a woman in, like, business attire, and their heads are replaced with old tube televisions. And what he's writing against is this idea that television is going to drastically change the way that our culture perceives and understands truth. In chapter one, the title is The Medium is the Metaphor. And the point is that when you change the way the truth is communicated, so instead of being in a written form and you go to a visual form like TV, it actually changes the way that you view something to be true or not true. And he uses an example. He points out that in our nation's history, there have been presidents that have been really large and unhealthy looking, like large, uh, just Howard Taft is the example he gives. And he references him as being a over 300 pound, large, bulgy man. And if you were to throw that man into a debate on television, his ideas, you couldn't, and he actually makes a quip about the, he says, the shape of a man's body is largely irrelevant to the shape of his ideas, which is a really, really funny little quote. But I mean, the idea is you could listen to him and be like, wow, that's a good thought, that's a good thought. But then now that you watch it, and the way that we consume this now is really in like 15 second videos on Twitter or whatever. And we see these little, little moments ripped out of context. And it's all of these different mediums of communication that affect the way that we see something is true or not true. And in fact, I'm looking at Mr. Pre-Modern across the table over here. It's a very postmodern method of discerning truth. Mm-hmm. Like, do I like that person? Do other people like him? Where's he aligned? Like, what does he look like? I mean, our current president gets kind of buffooned often for his hair and his ability to walk down ramps and things like that. And people watch that and they're like, what a buffoon. He can't have any good ideas. And that's just an example of where the visual method affects the way that you discern whether or not what he's saying is objectively true or not. This book really took off even in 2016 when we were going through an election year and the current president is known for being an entertainer and how he did and he would even use entertainment. People would start laughing at whatever and be completely oblivious to what he actually said and sometimes what he said was very wrong. (laughs) But because everybody started laughing, does that then mean he's right see the medium affected the message he made me laugh so therefore he must be right and that's actually how a lot of americans think that's why entertainers are that's why we value entertainers opinions i mean who really gives a rip what some 18 year old musician has to say about political policies or international foreign uh, relations i mean what in the world does some 18 year old know that would help us. Got to swiftly shut that down. But if that person is able to entertain us and make us laugh or feel a certain way, then all of a sudden they've become an authority. Postman was very much prophetic uh, through all of this. Well, this, this is the whole idea. There are people whose careers are social media influencers. Mm-hmm. Because you're popular, we want to know what you think about this thing. Yep. And it has no regard for objectivity. It's completely relative. Anyway, good book. I read it about six years ago, and it 
drastically affected the way I looked at my entertainment choices and what I thought about the people and what they were presenting, how they were presenting things to me. Reading it again because I want to, again, be affected by that. To this day, he is the reason I'm scared to death to share a quote on any social media without giving adequate context. I do. I still do it. But I, in my mind, I think if Postman saw this, because he's so big on context. Yeah. And it's, it's just a really good book. And what's so always a, what's just incredible to me about this book, he's writing it about television. He has no comment on internet. Like, could he have even perceived oh. of what our culture would now look like and how truth is really transferred in, like, short tweet, 140 characters? Yeah. You know, a, a president who reaches millions of people through a tweet or an Instagram account or now our culture's falling in love with TikTok – which is just a matter of time before that becomes, hi- it's already hijacked. Too much time on that. Well, I don't know if you can spend too much time on Postman, yeah. but Tim. So just one last thing on Postman, though. If this connects. <laughs> yes, sorry, yes. No, no, there's never, I love this. never a wrong to, time to talk about you Postman. You need to understand the entertainment and how it affects uh, us and how it affects your church and how it affects the people in your pew. And then even as a pastor, I had to wrestle with, uh, I mean, I'm not a pastor, I'm a teacher, but even as a teacher, and is it a valid means to use entertainment to communicate truth? Or am I indirectly teaching my people how truth is communicated in a worldly way? So there's a lot more that we could go there, but this is not something that's just entertainment and out there. The church has borrowed this philosophy of education. We need to think more seriously about it. What I thought about right there is what you're saying is my preaching style as a pastor, my teaching style as a Sunday school teacher, even with little kids, mm-hmm. could be improperly training their affections towards w- the world. Correct. And the way that the world communicates. <sighs> That's treacherous. <laughs> Thin ice. Okay, so my book is going to be a little bit more fun. Uh, the book I'm talking about is Dragons and D- Dragon Slayers by Tim Chester. It is basically a compilation of ancient mythical stories about dragons and dragon slayers and he crosses different boundaries america south america asia africa and he notices these consistencies amongst these stories with dragons these fearsome creatures that that are slain by a hero Uh, it's just a fascinating study of personally i just thought it was interesting about how there were just different stories that i wasn't familiar with so it was a fun read. It was just kind of a fun read. But Ch- Chester does draw into uh, a more spiritual application at the end, and he connects it to the overarching story of the Bible and how there's a dragon, Satan, and then there's a dragon slayer, Jesus. Even he extends the analogy, and it's really an allegory, okay? But I thought it was kind of a cool one, so I thought I'd share it. Two, uh, a lot of these dragon stories has this, has this damsel that's in distress. She's in despair. She can't save herself. She needs a, a hero to save her. And in a similar way, you have the church. And the church is like the damsel in distress. We can't save ourselves. We need a dragon slayer to come and save, the dra- and save us from the dragon. So I just really thought it was kind of neat how Chester developed these stories that are fascinating. And this is a children's book, so 
kids would en- engage in this and then how he connected it really to the gospel. I really appreciated the read and that's what I had for today. So for our main content today, let's talk about being careful in our observations when we study the Bible. So I teach Introduction to Bible Study at our amazing Bible college. And in it, we study inductive Bible study method, which is what it's commonly referred to. There's three steps. You observe the text, you interpret it based on your observations, and then you apply it to people's lives. Something that we talk about in class that's very helpful when it comes to your own personal time in God's Word is making good, careful observations. I want to use an example passage, and I want us to talk about it a little bit right now, and I think we can learn something. So I'm going to read Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I'm going to ask you to make some application here for me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or you might say your reasonable service. That might be a good way to translate that. So here's going to be the question in verse 2. Verse 2 says this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So don't be conformed, rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here's my question. What are ways Christians go out and try to be just like the world? It says, don't be conformed to this world. So what are ways that Christians go out and try to copy the world or try to be like the world or try to conform to the way the world operates? Give me some ideas here, guys. So what pops into my mind right away, when I was in high school, I can remember a, a young gal that was in our youth group, and I, I remember walking down through the, the rows of lockers and seeing this girl, and then she had turned to some of her friends, a, a group of girls that were not saved individuals, and started speaking in a way, using some very specific words, and it's not necessarily like it was curse words, but there's just slang terms for things that she was using. I just remember it striking me as so odd. Like, why are you speaking like that? Ah. And then coming to the conclusion that, okay, she is changing the way that she's talking just to get approval from her friends. Yep. Changing the way we talk is kind of my, my thought there. Yeah, that's a good example because we do. We try to speak a certain way to get a reaction or to get attention or to fit in. That's really good. Okay. Any other ideas on ways we try to conform to the world for whatever reasons. In in success, how do we evaluate success and how do we evaluate our worth? It's so much worldly. Uh, who am I? Well, what have I done? Okay. And what do I have? And that's how the world evaluates who they are. And, and, uh, and so that's one way that just kind of comes to mind about how we are conformed to this world. That's a, yeah, that's a really good example. And I'm going to tag off that idea of success here. My experiences growing up in high school, there was a Christian bookstore nearby, and me and my friends from youth group would often go there. And if you went back to the music section, they had one of those decoder lists. In the one side of the paper were these secular bands, maybe it was heavy metal or hard rock or pop or whatever the genre was, and they have this name of a very popular band or singer. And then there was like the decoder column where you could go straight across and it would tell you like an equivalent Christian band that would try to sound just like them, but obviously adjust some of the cruder elements of their lyrics. And so you could see they were like trying to approach it that way. How can they be so successful and and get the most attention? We're going to be just like the world. So those are some really good ideas, guys. Good job at, at not applying that passage the right way.
Okay, now I told him I was setting him up for this. <laughs> yeah, we, we told him ahead of time. So when you look at this verse, it says, do not be conformed. Now, if you're making observations, if you take my class, we talk about active verbs and passive verbs, active voice and passive voice. So here it doesn't say don't conform to the world. That's what we were just talking about. How do we try to conform to the world? It says, it says something different. It says don't be conformed. Now that implies that you're not the one doing the conforming. It's someone else conforming you. What we were just talking about a minute ago, none of those things are, are wrong per se, Christianity. And you knew this. We, we, this is an exercise. We knew this was happening. But it's not what this passage is pointing out. We don't carefully look at the words in the text and, and pay careful attention to the words that God inspired for us to see. So what we were just talking about, while really good biblical applications, probably fit better with like a passage out of 1 John, like don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That I think would fit very well with what we were just doing. But this passage isn't saying, hey, be careful about the ways you actively try to copy the world. What is it saying? It's actually saying, what are ways the world is trying to influence you? to press you into its mold. Now, if we ask that question, do you guys, and we're not prepared for this part, do you guys have any ideas on the ways the world's trying to conform us to its mold? Like, if you think that way, do you come up with different ideas? Yeah, pleasure, entertainment, live for the moment. There's no future. Live your best life now. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those mantras that float around. Which is really interesting with that. That last that one. That particular <laughs> phrase is from a, air quote, Christian teacher. Like heavy, <laughs> heavy air quotes on that one. <laughs> yeah. But, but the point here is that if you're having your devotions or if you're studying the Bible and you're trying to figure out how you should be living as a Christian, if you come to this passage and you say, oh man, what are the ways I'm trying to copy the world? That's not a bad thing for you to think about. It's just not what this passage wants you to think about. Mm -hmm. This passage wants you to be defensive. Where is the enemy trying to shape my mind, change my thoughts, conform my, my values, my affections? And that is, it's, it's like being in a base and going out to attack the enemy. Well, you don't want to attack a certain way. That's like an active way of doing things. This passage is saying, where are the holes in your defensive line where the enemy's trying to creep in? It's a different way of thinking through your Christian life. So if you were to say this, how does the enemy try to affect me? How is the world trying to shape me? You might think of different answers to that question. Now, again, the point here, though, is that you need to make careful observations of the text. A lot of times these passages are so familiar to us, we read them all the time. We don't give them a lot of careful thought. So having a good Bible study practice, having understanding of what kinds of features are in the text helps you to have ways of seeing and looking at the Bible where you don't miss those sorts of things. Again, it's not wrong to say, where am I trying to copy the world? That's, that's a very good thing to think about. But it's better to see that this passage wants you to say, where are you being conformed? Maybe mm. you're not thinking about it. How can we go about improving our observational skills so that we catch things like that? My, my personal opinion is uh, that we need to know the English language actually a little bit better. Mm. So in, in Intro to Bible Study, I often quip, we walk through uh, different features of the text. So you've got verbs, you've got pronouns, nouns, and all this stuff sounds like English class, but understanding how these words work and then looking for them 
actually unlocks the meaning. And you might think, well, why do you got to do that with the Bible? You actually do that already in your mind without perceiving it in conversation. But when you're doing it with a book that's foreign to you, and especially in our in a Christian culture that's been so influenced by mysticism and charismatic in, and charismatic ideology, there's this idea that I'm going to read the Bible and I'm just going to get it. Like mm-hmm. God's going to mystically impart it to me. Mm-hmm. But what I say in class is God communicates to us the way he designed us to communicate to each other. And we're not computers, but if God were to design a, if I were to design a computer and it speaks in ones and zeros, and I need to communicate to that computer in a way to understand, I'm going to use ones and zeros. Why do we then with God, he, he designed us to communicate by thinking, by using language, by talking. Why would we then think that we're going to, by some other mystical way, just understand what the text is saying? If that's really how it is, why write the text in the first place? Mm. Why not just like Karl Barth and, you know, you get this immediate like sense of the divine or something like that. I think the best way to help this is to study Bible study practice, look at an inductive stop buddies, uh, inductive Bible study text. And then don't, you don't have to be an English major. I'm not saying that, but if you don't know what a verb is, if you don't know what a noun is, you're not going to catch the flow of the text. I mean, you're, yeah, I actually have a fun little story. If you're if you're a student at the college, and I think both of both of you guys here, mm-hmm. you know the Fritzes. When I was in high school, Brandon was a, a large part of our youth group, a youth leader, and helped lead a lot of that. And I can remember a, st- uh, a particular day where I'd come in. I think it was a is a midweek, and I was coming in. I was complaining about an English class I was in, and I said. This class is stupid. I'm never going to use this. Uh-oh. And it actually wasn't Brandon. It was his wife, Natalie, who said, no, aren't you going to go into ministry? I was like, yeah. She's like, you're going to preach in English, aren't you? Hmm. Oh. <laughs> I never forgot that. Hmm. And it's true. It's like you need to understand yep. English. And I would actually recommend... Most of Christians, most of us today, are not going to learn Greek and Hebrew. It's but they just, can. You can. And I would, I would say <laughs> that that would be a wonderful, wonderful goal for churches is to have biblical literacy that mm-hmm. extends beyond the English language, at least being able to interact with a commentary that interacts with the original language. And so if you're thinking about that, it's never going to hurt you to gain more information about the languages. But someone who has never read Greek, learned Greek, read Hebrew, anything at all like that. Read multiple English translations. Yes, yes. And understand the words of contention. And I'm not saying contention in a sense that there are disagreements about the meaning, but understand where different translations are trying to come at the idea with a different English word and and focus in on why that idea is difficult to translate or, or what, what phrases are producing those, you know, quote-unquote contentions. And, th- and that's, that's just a good practice of, of understanding translate our English translations is, okay, this is what the ESV says, this is what the New King James says, this is what the NASB says, you know, and, and there are some translations that are just probably a waste of your time. Those are re- three really good ones, mm-hmm. I would say, yep. decently good ones. Yes. And what I love about the New King James is that it actually tells me when there are differences. Yes. It tells me when there are textual variants, which if that's, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, don't worry about it. It's just sometimes manuscripts differ. 
And the New King James translations tell you where they differ and why they've chosen a particular variant. They tell you when they add a word, they italicize things that they add in for meaning. And, and other translations don't always consistently do that for you. But so just I would, back to your question, Tim, of like how do you mm-hmm. how do you do this well? Like how yeah. do you increase our understanding? That's read multiple English translations, not just not just one. And I know that's a little. It makes me. It made me felt feel uncomfortable. I came to Bible college and I would only ever had a New King James, and then I was memorizing verses in ESV, and it really, you know, I, yeah. I hate to say psychologically affected me, but it was weird for me because I'd never. Yeah, you just didn't that. know. You didn't know. That's okay. Yeah. It's okay. You can use all those tools to understand what the Word of God is teaching. I would say, and I would just say this, that uh, don't let, if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, that's that's okay. I, I'm the Greek teacher, and I say... And you don't know Greek or Hebrew. No, no, I do know Greek and Hebrew. I'm not saying that. I know Greek and I know Hebrew. I, my Hebrew's a little that rusty. A, that was like the best zing. My poor. <laughs> You're horrendous. Now I sound like Tim. What I what I'm saying is, I don't think this is my opinion. I don't think you need to know Greek and Hebrew because God, God has, has given His word in our language. It's good if you can, but you need to know that. But what I would say is this: if if I'm a parent and I give my child specific instructions, if they don't follow my instructions because they didn't listen well, that's on the child. And when I study the Bible, I don't want to expect some mystical intuition when God expected me to listen well to the words that he safeguarded. Careful observation isn't just some newfangled idea. It's actually taking the idea of inerrancy and God's revelation seriously. Amen. So I, I think being careful in your observation is not mechanical. I think it's just carefully being trusting of God and taking what he said very seriously. So One last addition, uh, helping you to study the Bible better and make observations better. I like doing it in community. Yes. Get together yes. with your siblings, get together with your pastor or somebody in your mm-hmm. church. Community is a great way to focus on the text and to uh, study the word. Yes, I would I would heartily agree with that. I would heartily agree. We have, we have multiple Bible study projects in the class I do, and two of them we do in groups for that exact reason. Thank you for saying that. And that's what we're doing here. Yes. It's, it's not, it's certainly something you do with books, but the book with the word, it's meant to be in community. It was never intended to be outside of spiritual community. With that, we're just going to close really quick with the verse we spent most of our time kind of looking and thinking through Romans 12. But uh, here's, here's a verse in Colossians that I want to direct your attention to. In Colossians chapter 2, and it's a phrase that's kind of buried. It's subordinated a couple times over here. He's describing his ministry at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. He says, I want you to know, this is chapter 2 verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then here's the phrase, it's verse 3. It's a, a phrase modifying Christ. It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. An interesting study, you can go and, and try to find out the exact heresies, or if there was a heresy, Paul was trying to confront in the Colossian church. But what's very clear is there were people, according to 
verse 4 and the rest of the chapter that we're trying to draw some believers away from the head, from Christ. And it's just a, a subtle reminder that he's going to dive into very thoroughly that all the wisdom, all the treasure, all the riches available to us as Christians are because we're united to Christ. And we need to stay united, walking in his spirit, and remind ourselves, okay, if I want to be wise, I want to know what God's word says, that starts in my walk of faith with the Savior. It's never separated from him. And you follow up with verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And some translations even say there, with it's the idea of philosophy. Like someone could really convince you that there's another way to find joy in life, that there's another way to find knowledge. And the Christian's answer is, no, it's in Christ. And we want to remind you of that as well. Thank you for listening this week. Continue to read good books, cultivate your mind, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.